We open on the Daily Planet. Lois is bullying Clark over his editorial on adoptive children searching for their parents. In come the men in black! They storm and lock down the office, smacking a warrant in Perry White's hands. The leader of the group inexplicably knows Clark Kent by repute and says, I want Superman, and I'm not leaving until you tell me where I can find him. Roll the open! I'm Andrew Anthony, and this is Soup, a look back at the adventures of Lois and Clark from the 90s. This episode is right after the pilot and serves only to further flush out the universe as well as the second tier cast members in a way that they didn't have time in the first episode. To summarize, this is an episode full of interrogation, both overt and sly. The episode is an info dump meant to flush out more soup facts on us and let us know things like who does Lois go home to or who does she live with? We're opening on government spooks, grilling our leads, and I'm out the gate wondering, why are Lois and Clark targeted for this? They paired up once on a story, and Lois has yet to have her famous exclusive with our superhero. Why are they treated like the famous human delegates or conduits to the man in red that they've yet to become? The storyline, to me, is super premature. So Lois and Clark have to twiddle their thumbs in Perry's office while the MIB organize a polygraph. The producers squeeze a super moment here where Clark makes a crumpled ball of paper levitate over a trash bin. He apparently can blow at something and make it move directly upward. As usual, they raise more questions and problems than had they foregone a super moment altogether. Don't defy physics wrong, guys. Our leads argue against the idea of a polygraph. Clark argues First Amendment, and Lois and Perry point out, we don't know anything anyway. How can it hurt? And then zany jazz piano music plays to sting on Clark as he ah shucks because he knows everything about Superman. Dun, dun, dun. At this point, I'd like to say that polygraphs are famously inadmissible in real-life court systems. They only have real power or true belief in TV and film, and even now in recent fiction, we've actually made the courtesy trope of having characters point this out. But this is the 90s, and as far as the 90s are concerned, this is a truth magic machine. So the men in black have invaded the Daily Planet, and we meet their head honcho of the group. He's an obsessive government zealot named Jason Trask. Jason Trask is born from the series in the same way that Harley Quinn was first established in Batman the Animated Series. She was created and derived straight from the TV show. The new adventures of Lois and Clark made a point of creating many of their adversaries, and this is an early entry. It's important to point out that the inventor of the polygraph machine, William Moulton Marston, also invented Wonder Woman and her lasso of truth. He was a psychologist, uh, polyamorous before it was trendy, and he made a machine that tracks your blood and pressure stress. So really, the machine at best helps suggest how someone feels about a question they're being asked, not necessarily whether it is true. But again, for the sake and stakes of this scene, for both Lois and Clark taking turns with the polygraph, we have to believe it is a magic truth machine. We begin with Lois's turn, and they establish a baseline for her by asking her about Superman. It's very glib, and almost every one of her responses are these long, contrived, cliche, smart-ass remarks designed to make her seem like a tough cookie. They go so far as to ask if she has a romantic attachment to Superman, and the machine beeps like she just won at a casino when she says no. Why is this happening? Like I said, Soup and Lois haven't had their famous interview yet, and I don't even think it's possible at this point to suggest anyone saw Clark with Soup. So why are these two people being interrogated? Why Clark at all? And why Lois at this point? Perhaps the episode was shot out of order and meant to come later is what I thought, but by the end, we'll actually know emphatically that this is not the case. Uh, more on that later, though. 
At any rate, I just feel like a witch hunt for soup with Lois and Clark in the crosshairs is indeed super premature. We go over to Clark's turn for the polygraph, and they come up with two questions to calibrate the machine. Are you Clark Kent? The presumed truth. And are you Superman? The intentional baseline lie. They almost ask it fully jokingly, and it's a really great moment. Clark makes his way through the line of questioning, nervous like he's a bold child in a principal's office. They really build up how nervous he is, and instead of ramping up to a romantically inclined question, they ask, can you contact Superman? Why on earth would they ask him this? Is it because he's been Lois's writing partner? And if so, she hasn't written anything yet. Anyway, he gets so nervous that he wraps his ankles around the chair legs and floats off the ground for a split second. If anyone out of the hundred people in the room, including the three agents across from him, were looking in that direction, it would have been obvious what was happening. I love how his powers are now nervous ticks, apparently. And in that moment, I didn't suspend my disbelief and think, oh, a man can defy gravity. I instead had to suspend my disbelief to think, nobody saw him do that? It was challenging. Again, their super moments usually just cause more problems than they solve any. So that wraps up the preliminary intro to the interrogation and the introduction of the Black Hat Feds. That's really what this whole opening was, because again, this episode is a series of conversations and interrogations meant to info dump on us. This was the most aggressive of which, which, you know, was strapping you to a machine and, and locking down your office. But everyone leaves. The agents pack up and they storm out as quickly as they stormed in. And then Kat walks out to complain that she got frisked twice and she adjusts her one-piece jumpsuit. It is sleeveless, backless, hot pink, and accented with bright yellow flowers. Every color is as bright as a highlighter marker. What is she wearing? So Chief tells Lois and Clark to avoid their homes so that they don't get legally served to have to go through interrogations again. He's trying to launch us into the second act now, but we're going to have fun and games of laying low. He orders, and Kat overhears this and demands, Clark, you stay at my place tonight. So this feels like a weird thing to order Lois and Clark to do. He's pretty much telling them to go on the lam. And, and they aren't even being actively pursued. I, I wondered why he'd force such a thing before realizing, oh yeah, they want to introduce tier two and three people in the cast and finish fleshing out peripheral characters. Of course Clark is going to go home with Kat. What is she wearing? We haven't seen her home yet. Hard cut to Kat's home, and she immediately tears through her closet for something more comfortable, she tells Clark. Particularly, she wants to pick something that he'll love, something designed to get a response from him. And we know this because she gives a Shakespearean soliloquy to herself while rummaging in her closet. She comes out in a college sweat top with her hair headbanded back simply. She nailed it. She looks like a regular farm girl at home for movie night. Clark compliments Kat's collection of books, and this feels like an attempt to offset her over-sexualization, but then they immediately fail when Clark says, this place doesn't look how I thought it would, pointing at her bookshelf, and she responds, just wait till you see the bedroom. John Waters once said, if you go home with someone and they don't have any books, don't screw them. I wonder if they were indeed trying to prime us for a bedroom scene with all this, but luckily... They just ended up on the couch having a powwow with wine. So what made you get into the gossip business? Clark asks Kat, and she expresses a love for secrets. And that's what Clark's all about. And in this scene, she tries to pry him in a really nice way, and it actually opens her up a bit. Clark is being interrogated again, only nicely. On the flip side of the coin, we cut to Lois's after-work response to all this. She bursts in and out of her apartment in a two-minute window to pack and leave. She's behaving like she's in the Pelican Brief, and men are trying to kill her. She packs random things in her bag as well, uh, things that don't really all coincide. She's just grabbing at things. 
She gives instructions to her roommate slash sister to pretty much forget that she knows her and deny that she ever lived there, which would negate the first thing if you did the second thing. It seems like a distinct overreaction at any rate, and later in the episode, her sister doesn't even follow any of these instructions. Lois gets paged on her beeper, what a wonderful dated object, and has to go immediately back to the Daily Planet, where she just came from. She calls Clark to get him to head over as well, only when she does, Kat answers and tailors her responses to sound like she and Clark fooled around. So that's all that's happened. We're at the end of the second act. The government grilled Lois and Clark. Tier 2 characters started talking to Lois and Clark as well afterward. They got spooked and then just came back to the Daily Planet, where they could be easily found again. So back at the planet, Lois sex-shames Cat to Clark and dismisses him as another notch on the woman's bedpost. They find out why Perry called them in. The men in black from the morning weren't with the U.S. government. Who were they? We don't know, but we suspect their sole purpose is to capture Superman. Dun-dun-dun. Super obvious, guys, and kind of explicitly stated by them. While writing, Lois has a typo moment, and Clark tries to correct it, and Lois scoffs and says, That's why we have editors. I love this moment. It's a quality of Lois I recognize, and the person seems more real to me because she's fallible. It's not like Terry Hatcher splitting out cliche, hard-boiled, tough-guy lines that nobody would get away with in real life. To end everybody returning to the planet at the end of the second act is Kat returning to the planet. When she does, she doffs her coat to reveal a bright white number. I guess this is why she got in way after Clark after leaving from the same place. She needed a change again. Jimmy comes over to high-five Clark over Cat like he's some kind of sex-crazed caveman, and it makes Lois sick, so she stomps off. And I guess this is to feed the will-they-won't-they they dynamic of Lois and Clark, coupled with the opposites attract, or, or the hallmark, first they're annoyed by each other, and next they're in love. But my big issue with the show is unearned romance. Lois does not really hit it off with Clark, but Clark, regardless, is falling in love with her. And she's constantly annoyed when other women give him attention, it feels like because the show is called Lois and Clark, and because the dynamic is a famous one, the writers feel like, well, the love and romance is implied. But I don't want it to be implied, or a Greek tragedy occurring off stage. If these people are meant to be, I want them, and in turn me as the viewer, to discover why they seem to be operating off meta-love. When a real representative of the U.S. government comes in, he grills Lois and Clark on what they remember, because they want to catch the men impersonating feds. They take it very seriously. That said, Clark uses x-ray vision to see inside the man's briefcase. He has a series of files marked with dates and states, correlating with famous possible alien sightings and crash landings. He sees that Smallville and his year of arrival are amongst them. Is this man indeed looking to catch the fake feds, or is he just as interested as they are in catching soup? Either way, it launches us into the third act and reveals that this agent knows how to find Jason Trask. He has a secret meeting with him at a warehouse in order to shut the man down. Jason beats down the agent and is finalized as rogue. He kind of has the same dogma as early Lex Luthor. He immediately wants Soup dead because he's too strong, and it's only a matter of time before he kills us first. Jason is the leader of a Superman-hunting shadow group known as Bureau 39. Introduction done. We're in the third act. It's just interrogations. Clark goes home to Mom and Pa Kent to eat supper at super speed and asks about his past. Am I indeed an alien, like they say, or am I a human experiment? They admit that government spooks visited them shortly after he landed. It sounds like it was the early days of the same agency, Bureau 39. Pa Kent admits he never destroyed the ship Clark arrived in. 
the plot thickens. But before we go on to them walking their property in search of said ship, a note about this version of Clark Kent's eating habits. It's often shown that his home is stocked with piles of junk food and he eats mountains of food. I looked into it, and while there are certainly versions of Superman where, like the Flash, he has a super metabolism and needs extra calories to exist and use powers, I discovered that the more accepted answer to does Superman have to sleep or eat is no. He gets all of his energy from the sun, literally all of his nourishment and energy. It made me think, boy, if it hasn't been done already, there should be a plot where someone is trying to augment our ozone with gases or do something equivocal to blacking out the sun in an effort to neutralize Soup's powers, or at the very least limit his recharge. I couldn't find a famous enough instance, and in my mind I thought, well, he would just fly above it all into space and then recharge. Anyhow, he and his parents walk the property and find where Pa Kent buried the ship. This is an opportunity for another super moment as Clark uses his powers to spin like a drill and unearth the spot. To their confusion and fear, the ship is not there. So our heroes reset at the Daily Planet and turn out their empty pockets. They still don't know who the spooks were. This story is going to remain thin for them with convenient leaps ahead because, again, it's just a mechanical episode of exposition. As, as Clark examines old archival front pages relating to UFOs, which is, again, another great dated moment of tech, Lois looks over his shoulder and spots Jason Trask in a photo. It's their next lead. Before they run off to do a police procedural scene, they get annoyingly stopped three times. Cat stops Clark for a quick flirt. What is she wearing?! She looks like the superhero popsicle you get from ice cream trucks. She is always so incredibly bright, and it really offsets the otherwise brown and gray 90s office. It's like a short club dress in hot pink and baby blue and red, and she looks straight out of an 80s workout video. Clark begs her to stop letting people in the office believe that they've had sex. He doesn't want it getting around at the workplace. I, I can't help but feel like this is a reversal of reality, and it was really hard to watch and take seriously. Anyway, they're going to head out again, but... Percy stops them, and he gives an anecdote to Clark in Recat. It's about Elvis, and the punchline is, Fools rush in. He plugs his Elvis and King references and sends Clark on his way. So they go to visit the leader in the photograph of the unit, and they interrogate him like they're the cops. Uh, he's this over-the-hill, retired military man with everything on his wall plastered like Mentos. He's pretty much done at the end of the line. He's the, in a story structure, um, kind of a warning character. Uh, in, in a circle story where you're approaching your fourth act, there's sometimes a hint or whiff of death. And that could be your life being threatened. That could be a mentor or somebody who's been through what you're going through dies. And it's supposed to give you a whiff of death that helps put fire under your butt to survive the fourth act in the way that that person did not. So this guy has clearly been chewed up by the military system. And his purpose is to launch us into the fourth act and our characters by giving them something that will send them there uh, clue wise but also to finalize fleshing out the info dump on jason trask we now know him as the you know as i said leader of the rogue superman hunting group the military zealot so this leader person gives lois and clark his old id card for the rogue base it's so that they can infiltrate it this is weird wouldn't he give it to the authorities? And why? What does he hope will be accomplished? He puts the card key on the table for Lois and Clark, faces the wall, and begins loading his gun as he counts them out of the room, threatening to turn and fire. He basically sends them to the fourth act at gunpoint, but again, no one has talked about some evil plot or anything to stop that's urgent. I don't know what he was hoping to accomplish. Does he want to expose Bureau 39? At any rate, uh, I'm... 
asking critical questions of something that I've already written off as expository. So it's, it's, it's kind of kicking a horse while it's down. That's a weird expression. That's not a real expression. <laughs> I'm mixing up kicking a dead horse with kicking anyone when they're down. So why would I be kicking a horse down? Let's not hurt horses. No horses were harmed in the making of this podcast episode. Lois and Clark find Bureau 39, and Clark listens to the door as he cracks the lock. I realize this is a tongue twister. Lois and Clark crack the lock. Lois and Clark crack the lock. Say that ten times fast. The room they break into have no people. It's storage. It's basically the Area 51 warehouse from Indiana Jones, only everything is unboxed. Uh, amongst the rubbish, Clark finds his own ship. At this moment, I have questions. If the agency found the ship buried on the Kent farm, surely they would remain suspicious of the Kents and would have sniffed out Clark away earlier. Clark also brushes dirt off of the ship, because apparently it was stored and nobody inspected it, studied it, or cleaned it, and it reveals his Superman S. That means that Superman can be connected to the ship, the ship to the farm, the farm to him, and my reaction is, rip that off, man! Destroy the evidence! No such thing happens! Instead, he reaches into the ship and pulls out a tiny glowing ball. It's an orb of the planet Krypton. It seems that in the first season, the crystals we're used to are being thrown out of this mythos, and we are left with a glowing Kryptonian globe. Something apparently anyone could have found had they cleared the dirt off of the found spaceship and bothered checking the glove box, because why doesn't it have a glove box? Having done brief research on it, I have found that it's only in this mythos that they have forgone the crystals that lead to the Fortress of Solitude and have instead given him a glowing globe of Krypton. At this moment, Lois and Clark get discovered by Trask and his goons. Lois warns Jason that Superman will come looking for them, and Jason loves this and welcomes the idea because of course... We get a brief scene of Jimmy checking in at Lois's apartment. This is a nothing scene between him and Lois's sister that does nothing more than let us know that workplace is beginning to understand she and Clark are in danger and or missing. We need to have fed steaks. It's no point kidnapping somebody if nobody knows they're kidnapped. So Lois having a younger sister, Lucy, is indeed canon. In fact, Lucy is one of the many people to don the identity of Superwoman. Not in this universe, of course. I looked this up because I wondered why they made Lois's roommate family. I wondered what it was like socially back in the day. Maybe at a certain age, an adult shouldn't room with a stranger, but then again, Seinfeld is airing at this time, and Elaine has a hilarious actress roommate. We cut back to the peril. Lois and Clark are bound prisoners with the baddies flying on a cargo aircraft in the air. Lois tells Clark that she reads and watches romances and worries she'll die this day, never having met her true love. She confesses this as her biggest secret. We are now feeding the theme of the whole episode, and as far as their writers are concerned, they've come full circle because she has finally uh, confessed her big truth. So she asks Clark for his. But luckily, she thinks the juiciest thing he has to say is that he had sex with Kat. So phew, he doesn't have to admit he's Superman. Lois answers for him, sarcastically and mean, about Cat, and he just takes it, because of course he would. Jason Trask tells Lois and Clark that falling from 30,000 feet will surely inspire them to contact Superman, however it is they do. Jason Trask is pretty crazy. Like, in this episode, he truly believes that they're doing it telepathically. He believes that they mentally scream out to Superman, and they have a, a personal bond with him, which, hey, I mean, he has nothing else to go off of. Uh, Maybe I just make fun of him because I have meta-knowledge. I will for the final time remind you that Lois has not had her Superman exclusive. Why does Trask think that they can contact him? 
So Trask is going to throw Lois out of the plane first, but she begs one last kiss from Clark before death. She kisses him and whispers, you take the one on the left in a moment that felt inspired by Michael Bay. The resistance fails and Lois gets thrown out of the plane. Clark is shot and then thrown out, but he of course catches the bullet first and they assume that they must have missed him. As Lois falls, she yells, Superman, I don't know where you are, but stop what you're doing and get over here now! And I couldn't help but think about Crank 2 opening up with us hearing the reality of Jason Statham's phone call to Amy Smart. Nothing but whooshing of wind. She's so composed. Panic and scream, woman. You don't need dialogue. Clark is seen falling, and we learn back on the plane that he and Lois have trackers on them so that the baddies can mark if and when Superman saves them. Superman is suddenly slicing through the air to save Lois. Wait, did Clark strip while falling? And, and if so, what do you do about the tall boots? Where are your shoes? And how does that costume piece switch? Will I somehow see you in those clothes again? Will the shoes and the belt fall so fast from that height that it'll kill someone down below and that'll become some new villain's origin? Anyway, soup to the rescue! She says, you really do know how to read minds. Did she think she was screaming in her head? She also takes way too long to ask about Clark falling to death, and for some reason, she believes Soup when he says, Oh, I'll go back for him. Fun fact, when falling from that height, you have about 50 seconds before you pull your chute, and you fall for about 5 minutes. They have no chute, so let's call their fall generously 2 minutes. He drops her off on a roof, and it seems like he's going to immediately sell that he's going to save Clark, only... There's a missile coming for them. The baddies have fired it, and it's tracking them. Soup flies up and catches the missile and tries to throw it back like a javelin. But it cooked too long, so it explodes, and it throws his body away like a rag doll. The baddies classify this a win and assume that they killed him, flying away. Because that's what baddies do. They don't confirm the kill. So in our denouement of an episode that was really about interrogating new and old characters... I say old, but I mean already introduced. We have Lois looking disheveled back at the planet, and she's telling Perry what happened. Neither of them know if Superman is okay, and they worry. Then, Clark walks in. Lois cheers, and she dances, and she punches the air, and she messes her hair and does a twirl like she's in a shampoo commercial. She is over the Goram moon. Clark is flattered, and she says, If Clark is alive, so is Superman, thus feeding the ongoing ire of Lois preferring soup over Clark. Again, he would have been long dead, and if Lois had any grasp on the realities of falling from a plane, she would have pieced together that Clark is Superman. In fact, I don't know if the tracker was in the clothes or not, but they either assume that Clark is Superman or he's dead, because, again, he had a tracker on that they were following. Anyway, I am delighted at how little she cared about Clark. And also, Clark is wearing the same clothes that he ditched. They don't even look dirty. They are not even wrinkled. The tag at the end of the episode is Clark going to Lois as Soup, as the boy she prefers, and he promises her that he's going to find and stop Jason Trask. He begins to give her an exclusive, and it's the first and famous one I'm talking about, and again, I think that this should have happened way later. This episode, I mean to say. Superman says that he's here to help, and Lois actually feeds him the line, for truth and justice? And he says, I like that. This is great at reminding us that Soup is a citizen of the world, and it brings us back to the roots of his endless battle. The American Way bit came way later, and it was a little controversial when it did. He flies off to save someone who's yelling help, and Lois looks on all dreamily, as do I, looking on until next week, signing off. <laughs> <laughs>